Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that pushes the parameters of discussing motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories including engineers have figured out a way to charge electric car batteries in 10 minutes. We chat to Paul Hamer MP who is only the 32nd person since 1856 to have engineering qualifications and be an MP in the Victorian Parliament. We have some motoring minutes and we talk some quirky news with Brian Smith. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify or our Facebook site is Overdrive City. So let's start the program with the news. Electric vehicles will only be truly competitive when they can have quick charging and limited deterioration of the battery over the usable life of the vehicle. The US Department of Energy has set a goal of developing extreme fast charging technology that can add 320 kilometres of driving range in 10 minutes. The big problem with lithium-ion batteries is lithium plating, which usually occurs at high charge rates and drastically deteriorates battery life and safety. Now, a paper from Pennsylvania University Department of Mechanical Engineering says they have a solution. They call it ATM, Asymmetric Temperature Modulation, that charges a lithium-ion cell at an elevated temperature of 60 degrees C to eliminate lithium plating and eliminating the exposure time to 60 degrees C to approximately 10 minutes per cycle, this prevents serious materials degradation. This prevents serious material degradation. Using available battery materials, they showed that a high-energy lithium-ion cell with the ATM method retains 92% capacity after 2,500 cycles which is equal to 800,000 kilometres of driving range, far exceeding the US Department of Energy's target of 500 cycles at 20% loss. It was less than 12 months ago that Hyundai launched the first model of their Ionic 5-door eco-friendly fastback sedan onto the Australian market. And now 10 months or so later, they've upgraded it. You still have the options of a hybrid, plug-in hybrid or full electric, but the upgrade has produced a few good improvements. There's a bit of cosmetic changes to the outside, there's a new interior, particularly with a bigger infotainment screen, and the full electric model has some more battery power, which extends its range by a third to 311 kilometres. There's also an advanced water cooling system for the battery which enhances the speed and the number of times you can recharge the batteries. But the price has increased and now ranges from just under 35000 from the base model hybrid to 52500 for the full electric model plus on-road costs. Most states in Australia do not give advanced warning to drivers that they are approaching a speed camera. But New South Wales does at the moment, but maybe not for long. 
the government is considering scrapping these warning signs. This was a recommendation from a recent Auditor-General's report, but the report also was critical of major aspects of how the mobile camera program was being managed. The key issue is that locations should be selected randomly so that the public believes they could be caught anywhere. But while in 2012 it was announced that the program would be operating at about 2,500 locations, there are currently only 940 that are approved and suitable. And some sites are being used frequently. 60 locations were visited more than 500 times in the last five years, 8 visited more than 1,000 times, and 1 visited nearly 1,800 times in that period. Volkswagen has revealed the details of their 2020 Golf, the eighth generation of the vehicle. They say they have started a hybrid offensive with five hybrid drive versions. It uses some 48 volt technology. It has a digital dashboard to help drivers to operate the vehicle more intuitively. And it has the car to x system. This allows connected cars from any manufacturer to broadcast information in real time, warning other enabled vehicles of hazards on the road ahead or the proximity of an emergency vehicle trying to make its way through traffic. This technology was developed by an Australian company, Coda Wireless, whose headquarters are in Adelaide. The car will be for sale in some overseas markets in December and in Australia in 2020. Ford's headquarters have announced that they will be revealing a new SUV, but this one has a number of significant characteristics. The exterior design is said to be Mustang-inspired, and it has an all-electric power plant. The reveal date is set at the 17th of November 2019. Ford have released a video teaser on the car, which is on YouTube, but it doesn't show much. Extending a sports car into a sedan is fraught with danger because you can lose a sense of proportion in the style. The Porsche Panamera is a case in point. Making an SUV with the Mustang looks means you can fashion the nose and make the station wagon with a sloping roof at the back. The better results are making it like a hatchback. The worst results are to overdo the sloping look of a sports car. A mistake made by the BMW X6 and the Mercedes GLC. Overdrive has reported in the past about how our understanding of transport is distorted by misconceptions about who is travelling where and why. Now some research from America challenges the traditional thinking about the difference between people living in the inner city and those in the suburbs. Eric Moss, who teaches urban planning at Clemson University, looked at the amount of times that urbanites and suburbanites, respectively, devoted to 18 daily activities. It turns out that there is very little difference in these two areas between those who are demographically similar and how they spend their time. Both the composition of their activities and the amount of time they devote to them are remarkably similar. The biggest difference is the time spent in travelling, mainly comprised of commuting to and from work, but here the results are counterintuitive. 
The reality is that city dwellers devote substantially more time to travel than suburbanites. In fact, residents of six large, dense and dynamic cities, including Boston, Chicago and San Francisco, spent 15% more time on travel. This could reflect high traffic congestion or long transit rides in these metros. And that has been the news. Amid the swing towards SUVs in Australia, the sale of sedans, wagons and hatchbacks has suffered. The small car segment has been particularly hit hard in recent times. However, among the cars on offer, Rob Fraser has just driven a little gem. I've just spent a week in a Honda Civic L sedan. I've got to say, the overall impression was that it was just a really good car to drive. Well balanced in its ride and handling, and with a 1.5 litre engine and a CVT transmission, it simply hummed along. On the freeway, it cruised effortlessly at the speed limit, and we got about 5.3 litres per 100 k's, and around town, about 8 litres per 100 k's. As it was the middle of the range, it had a mix of comfort and safety features, but I didn't feel anything was really missing, with the exception perhaps of an additional lumbar support for my ageing back. There was reasonable room in the back for passengers, and the boot was a good size, even though the opening was small, but the rear seats fold for extra storage length. At a touch under $28,000 plus the usual costs, it also represents pretty good value. If you like the more traditional style car, the Honda Civic is absolutely worth a look. You're listening to Overdrive. Last year I attended a student leadership summit organised by students from Monash University and led by a postgraduate candidate, Laura Aston, under the auspices of the Institute of Transportation Engineers. It was held at Box Hill. Now, I spoke to a local representative there who regretted to some degree that the seat of Box Hill in the state government was considered a safe seat. But in the 2018 state election, the Andrews government increased its majority, including winning the seat of Box Hill for the first time in 26 years. Their candidate was Paul Hamer, and in his maiden speech to Parliament, he noted that his background was as a professional engineer, which was somewhat unusual for a politician. Can an engineer add something different to the political and government functions? Paul Hamer joins me on the line now. Paul, thank you very much for your time. I know you have an extremely busy schedule. No, no problem at all. Thanks, David. Are engineers underrepresented? Oh, absolutely. Before my inaugural speech, I, uh, I did a little bit of research. And in the Victorian Parliament, since the first year of responsible government, which was 1856, there had only been 31 engineers who had any form of engineering qualification. So that would, that included a diploma or undergraduate um, or postgraduate level on number 32 and there's been almost 2,000 members of parliament in that time so that is a poor representation amongst the engineering community in, in parliament and I, I dare say that other state parliaments and, uh, and, and the federal parliament over its time has similarly been underrepresented. What are the, some of the fundamental skills that you think a science-based background can help bring to the parliamentary process? Well, I think all of the, 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 like the science and engineering disciplines by their nature are analytical and try and resolve problems. It's, it's, their, it's, a, it's the very nature of the, of the work that we do. And I think that's a really important asset to have in parliament, particularly when you're talking about sort of future policy 
and trying to, to set the policy for the years ahead. I think certainly from an engineering background, and you're talking transport infrastructure and, the, and, and, and my background, your planning horizon is, is quite long. So you know, maybe sort of 30, 50 years is, is quite normal. And many governments in the past, have, uh, there's, there's been, I guess, a critique that governments are focused too much on the short term and, and not enough on what we need as a community in the long term. I fully respect and know many really good people working in government striving to the full extent of the skills that are necessary. I guess that that doesn't always get reflected in the public debate. Is that part of the issue? I suppose the the the, the public debate is also then can can be framed also by the media who might not necessarily always have be fully involved in the, the depth of the discussion. So I think that it can be sort of just coming from two different perspectives on on a, on a particular issue. Is it our fault? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think it's. A, I don't think it's a question of of, of blame or, or fault anywhere. I, I think that there's. It's. It's just a. When I say it's a. It's a. Sometimes a, a different perspective in terms of what's different perspective on different issues. We often see now a lot of things driven by algorithms and numbers, yet the community and value, you spoke about that very much in your maiden speech, and I think that came strongly from your family. Your father had a particularly specific experience that enhanced his understanding of the value of a family and community. That's right. So, uh, yeah, my, uh, my my father was a um, child survivor of the Holocaust in wartime Poland, and uh, I think that the values that uh, I was brought up with have helped me be the person that that I am today, and, and really like a, have a have a, a strong passion for zero tolerance on on racism and a passion for inclusion and of, of all people, whatever their, whatever their beliefs or creeds or colour of their skin or wherever. And I know they they might seem fairly glib comments, but uh, I think we still see that in, 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 our, in our society. So I think it's just important to, for me to, to keep speaking out on that. I love the uh, comment you made that uh, you then had a family where you discussed things, where you t- talked about things. It is working with the customer and understanding needs that is a critical part of the processes they've learnt to apply. Yeah, and I, and I think I think that's correct. And I think just being able to discuss with people in a, in, a, in a very um, non-judgmental and, and I can say almost like a a relaxed environment where people are comfortable in just talking about what they've, what what their concerns might be, and I think if anything, that's that's probably uh, prepared me quite well for the uh, for the transition into a uh, a local member of parliament. Has it broadened your understanding of community? I think it has. Yes, in the engineering environment, while you do have obviously, like I said, that the there is consultation with the community. Day to day, most of the the work is a sort of business to business transaction. You probably don't get exposed to the diversity of the community, and particularly in certain sectors. So I'd probably highlight, say, the health sector mm. is one that uh, I've, I've openly said, look, 
thankfully, I, I haven't had a lot of personal experience and a lot of exposure to the health sector, but there are so many uh, wonderful people who are doing an amazing thing in that in that space. It's been fantastic opportunity for me this role to actually see what what goes on and learn more about about a, obviously a really critical sector of the population. Paul, I, I've taken much of your time. I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. No, my pleasure, David. And that was Paul Hamer, the member for Box Hill in the Victorian government whose background is as a civil engineer when engineering is sadly underrepresented in most Australian governments. This is Overdrive across Australia. If you have an electric vehicle, you'll soon be able to charge it up to four times faster with the Australian release of the world's first two-in-one solar inverter and EV charger. Rob Fraser has some more details. SolarEdge, which is a smart energy company, says its electric vehicle charging solar inverter enables faster charging through its solar boost mode. And it also allows you to simultaneously charge from both the grid and the solar power. Having a solar boost mode option effectively reduces the typical charging times by up to four. And using the solar only option also allows the added benefit of giving users more energy independence, helping to reduce those hefty power bills. The two-in-one charger and inverter is compatible with multiple electric vehicles and integrates with the SolarEdge monitoring system, allowing users to control and track the charging status and also schedule the charging to take advantage of any off-peak rates, all at the touch of their smartphone. Technology is definitely advancing at a rapid rate. You're listening to Overdrive. Rob, I, I took the A1 Audi around some of the roads up the east coast of Tasmania. They're lovely roads to drive, aren't they? Oh, it, it is a beautiful place down there, and sometimes you drive along and you just get those glimpses across the ocean as you're driving, and it, it <sighs> makes it just such an enjoyable place to be. Francinet. Yes. You know, the big water there and the sort of mountain range, what Australians would call mountain range in the background, and the glorious rich colours that are there. It's not the wide open flat plains of the hay plains going across New South Wales or that, sometimes dry. It is that sort of almost not semi rural but not absolute, you know, large farmland that does it. Uh, I really enjoy driving there. And of course also the roads are well, to say a word interesting. Yes. Yes, some of them are. But the good thing about them too is they're not very generally not very busy and that makes it a lot more fun to drive on the other thing i noticed uncharacteristically people are very polite because most of the roads are just one lane in each direction undivided limited opportunity to overtake well quite a significant number of people pulled over and let you pass do you know i I was down in tasmania or a couple of months ago now on a on a similar sort of drive program and that is something that's stuck in my mind (laughs) They just—they're they're not terribly in a hurry. They're happy to let you pass. They're happy to let you go on the bridge first if it's a one-laner, and they'll wave and say thank you. Yes, it's, it's quite foreign to Sydney siders and Melbourne siders. They'll even put their left-hand blinker on to show that they're pulling over and leave it on while you're overtaking. They have special cars in Tasmania. They actually have blinkers on the cars down there. <laughs> 
Well, I think we have them here, but I'm not sure anyone knows because, as you suggest there, they don't use them. Yes. And there's some lovely little places to stop. A few years ago, my wife and I did a a loop, a anti-clockwise loop around Tasmania, and uh, we stopped at this little place overlooking France and A. I think it's swapped hands now, but do you know what I remember? Quite a few years ago, when coffee wasn't as much as a lifestyle as is now, but still was coming there. And so we had a plunger in our room, and there was a bag of freshly ground coffee. I opened it, and I heard a Yes. And I smelt it. And do you know what? Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. I'm not a big coffee drinker, but I love the smell of freshly ground coffee. There are two guys that ran it. It was called Tabuki on the Sea. It's not called that now. They ran it with a great sense of pride and a sense of doing it right. There were only a, a few little rooms that you could hire there, but it overlooked the France and a Bay area there, and the, you could hear the water lapping. The, Tasmania is full of those opportunities. It's a great place to go for a drive and just stop along the way. And, and the beauty of it, too, is there is so much national park and so much wildlife, especially that Freycinet area, hmm. you can be in those little B&Bs or the little resorts or the little stopover places, and, and you quite often get a lot of wildlife just walking around or coming up to your door. Or It's just a, it's a fascinating place like that. We then went up and had lunch at the Piermont, the, not resort, well, retreat, I think they call it. They even have an amphitheatre, which is uh, rather nice for weddings and things. There's no financial thing in what I'm saying here. It's just that it's a nice place to be. And lovely history. The first building was put on the site in 1838. He was an ex-convict and he was raising sheep. And part of their main building still has some of the old walls. You know, law systems like that as well, mm. because for some reason it missed that knockdown redevelopment stage. Yes. And so it's full of those beautiful old buildings. The Cascade Beer is made there as well, right in the middle of town. And, of course, it is the third European city in Australia. Yes. We did Sydney first, Hobart, then Launceston. We did it because we were worried about the French, that they might claim it, because there's a lot of French boats going along Bass Strait, but they were more scientific than they were imperial. Tasmania, as you said, it's a fascinating place just to go for a drive. It's one of those places you really can just hop in the car, do a bit of planning, go for a drive. Something's different popping over the hill every time, and there's so much history there as well. Something different every time as you pop over the hill. Absolutely right. You don't have to travel huge distances. Rob, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. Overdrive. For more information and past programs, go to drivenmedia.com.au. And it's time to talk some of the more unusual stories. Brian Smith is on the line. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. Brian, uh, there has been many a story about people who uh, ring up the emergency phone number and uh, complain about certain things. Well, not complain, but sort of you would hope request help for an emergency. Yet I use the word complain, really, perhaps... That's the most appropriate. There is a story along this line. Yes, it's from Canada, actually, in Toronto. 
David, and you're right. Um, a person ringing nine one one, which is their their emergency number, there to complain about an ice cream ice cream truck being parked too long outside their house. And it was uh, the middle of summer, the hottest day in Toronto so far that year. It was, and obviously there must have been a high demand for ice cream. But uh, this person felt that it was an emergency that not that the ice cream wasn't coming, but the ice cream was taking too long the van being parked out there. Perhaps they didn't like green sleeves, David. I don't blame them. If it's playing green sleeves all that time, I would have thought the only other alternative was a shotgun to the loudspeaker. Perhaps they were complaining about having some kind of Pavlovian reaction where they were, you know, it's difficult to speak to them on the phone because they're salivating. <laughs> I'd like to complain and, and uh, I'd like a tissue. <laughs> <laughs> Well, given a recent story we did about someone parking in New York for 26 years, uh, see, it's a back to it. See, we the local community doesn't own the ice cream van, whereas if it was from a local and they left their old van there for a long time, preferably not praying Greensleeves, that they might have an affinity to it. But now, because there's this rank commercialism in there that's costing them money because of their children. Ah, well, that's also maybe what's being obscured here is that the, the real issue is they don't like children. <laughs> they don't want the children outside their house. That might be it. Because from my perspective, when I was a kid, I, you know, on a weekend, a hot weekend, we would just be straining our ears to hear the tunes of Greensleeves as Mr. Whippy came down because um you know that was a that was a sense of our community that, that you know the ice cream van would come down the street and you know all the kids would come out with 20 cents in their pocket and line up it was fantastic get a chock top uh, pavlov would be proud mm, indeed it's a it's a very strong memory for me and uh yeah. and an association with uh, those golden halcyon days when uh, uh australia was <laughs> i guess happy in the 60s well, it was probably an appalling place, but when you're a child, that's all you had, I suppose. You know, I think in America, the biggest time for emergency calls is on Christmas Day. And a significant number of calls are people ringing up saying, where on earth can I buy batteries? <laughs> Not that I've just found uh, a man dressed in red in my house. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't believe in Santa Claus. <laughs> That's right. And we're armed. <laughs> All right, Brian. Lovely to talk to you. Catch you up next week, eh? Thank you, David. That's Brian Smith, and we're talking some quirky news here on Overdrive. And this has been Overdrive. The Overdrive program is produced with the great help of Brian Smith, Rob Fraser and Paul Just. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au and previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. And of course we have our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.